In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars, one oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour. This show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. And this is episode 25. Joining me today is my quick-witted co-host, Patrick Pister. How are you doing today, Patrick? Excellent, Mark. How are you today? Uh, it's a little cold here. We're not at it's, home. It's quite brisk. Yeah. <laughs> We're not used to this sub-50 weather. It was 39 when we woke up, but it's not it's not wet like it is in Houston, so it's been a dry, cool, isn't as cold as a... As a yeah, so we're sitting here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're at the Mid-Cotton Digital Oilfield Conference, and we're not alone. we got a guest today. Yes, David Lacey. Pleasure to have you. Or meet you guys. <laughs> <laughs> pleasure. Yeah, well, we're coming to your hometown, so it's kind of a pleasure for us to be here, too. So, uh, David, you have a fascinating story. Um, and before we get into what you're doing now, I kind of want to understand, how the heck did you even get into this industry? How did you get in oil and gas? Oh, man, this has been a long journey. Uh, professional surveyor at Trade. Uh, we've traditionally done civil engineering and surveying, and we kind of morph into the construction part of the oil and gas and from the oil and gas some of the larger projects obviously doing stuff by hand is tedious cumbersome um, oil and gas you want to be able to turn that product quickly um, time is money and that's kind of how we started out into the drones yeah so surveying you're talking about actually doing surveying in the field out with transits and uh transits gps gps I've had the uh Distinct pleasure of learning how to do uh, theatolites from the chain to turning angles by hand all the way to the drones. It's It's been an interesting 20 years, if you will. Yeah, so the interesting, he brought up something called chains. You know what that is, Patrick? I do not. Yeah. Oh, it's a steel tape. You've got to pull that tape. So a million years ago, when they'd go out and measure property, they didn't, couldn't use rope because it would stretch. So they literally use chains. And these surveyors would go out and drag them and go piece to piece, part to part. And what's amazing about it is how accurate they were back then. I mean, it's, oh, it's, definitely. it's definitely. almost like it was impossible to be that accurate. They were really good with that. Oh, I couldn't imagine sitting there trying to go across land, driving 200-foot chains, 300-foot chains, and stretching. And, and depending on the weather, you mentioned the weather there, it's a... Uh, if it's hot outside, your chain's going to be longer. Cold outside, you have to constantly doing corrections. I mean, yeah. they were smart individuals. Didn't have the calculator or the iPhones we do today. And they did it all by hand, right? By Everything hand. by hand. And all that paper is filed in courthouses. And to this day, in a lot of places in the U.S., if you're going to figure out uh, what's the boundaries or you're looking at who owns the land or whatever, you go find these old paper records, and it was, it's measured in chains. It's all in chains. 66 yeah. feet per chain. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. Just yesterday, we were down south, McAllister, and we found some of the original 1850 stones. I mean, they didn't have a lot of rebar or metal back then, so they would set a stone, sandstone, carve an X in it, and um, hopefully we stumble upon it today. That's was, it, was it where it was supposed to be? It was. <laughs> Even or not, it's gospel. Whatever it is, yeah. that's it. <laughs> All right, so you got you starting serving, and, and serving is usually uh, the beginning of a project of some sort of fashion, right? And usually after surveying, there's a need for some type of engineering, and y'all have touched that as well. Uh, surveying is the basis for everything. Um, your projects, your engineers have to have our survey, and depending on the survey, if that's going to be a good project or not. Um, the engineer could go in there and design to the T and everything work, but if he has bad data or a bad base to stand from, 
it's going to be a bad project. So. Yeah, or they build a project on land that unfortunately they don't own. That, I've known two two <laughs> incidents here in Tulsa. It costs a lot of money. Costs a lot of money yeah. when you do that. A lot of money. Yeah. So without that basis of the surveying, there's there's a lot of risk involved. All right. So uh, surveying, how you got your start? When was that? Uh, I've been doing surveying for twenty years. So late nineties. Late nineties. And then licensed for the last ten and been on my own for eight. Yeah, so you kind of came in when all the technology started infiltrating because it used to be things like um, GPS. I mean, that was like super expensive and hard to use. Um, things like um, ultrasound and the laser levels and all that sort of stuff. That was right when you were coming in. Right when it's coming in. I've got the pleasure of meeting, working for an older company, and we seriously had theatolites where we had no electronics. We had a, a uh, actual a mirror that you'd pull off to the side, catch the sun, and it would illuminate all the numbers inside the instrument. And we calculated everything by hand. We would drag around field notes and turn angles by hand and then had the pleasure of getting into the total stations. That was amazing. What's a total station? The total station is we had two instruments with the satellite would turn the angles, and then we had an EDM, uh, distance measuring, and we had to sit it on top to measure the distance. I actually had the laser involved. So the total station would be the total package. We, gotcha. had, we had the laser in the angles all in one package. And now that stuff has changed so much, it's gotten light and easy and oh, it's, accurate. it's great. It's, yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. So, so, okay, so that's how you got your start in the industry. You got your start in the 90s. This whole drone thing, did people think you were crazy when you start talking about bringing drones? It, it's, it's been a three-year journey, and for the first year and a half, it's been a lot of convincing. It's been it's been the voodoo witchcraft of surveying on my part of it, for sure. Um, just like when GPS was integrated in the late 2000s or early 2000s, it... Uh, Everybody had their, their doubts. We would actually have to go out and GPS a, 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 a project, and then we'd have to come back and use a total station to prove the accuracies. So I remember that. So nobody really trusted it. Never. So they'd let you use it, but you had to go back and do it the old-fashioned way to verify the GPS, which now sounds so retarded. Well, you say that, but I'm doing the same thing with the, with the drones. Um, we were able to go out and fly a project, and then I still have engineers asses to go out and verify and check certain <laughs> things just to make them feel comfortable with the product that we're delivering. So, uh, the drone company, what's the name of your company? Air Topo. Yeah. And so y'all are actually using drones for surveying. We are. Yeah. We are. We're the first of the few companies here in the States that are to be able to do that. So if, if I'm an oil field, if I'm an upstream operator, if I'm a pipeline company or whatever, and I'm thinking about doing a project somewhere, what's the advantage of me using drones? The advantage is the time. Um, what would normally take a crew weeks to months we can do it in hours and days yeah the, the time is just phenomenal uh, what would take typically a five day project i can do it in less than half a day wow and with the same accuracies plus we have the imagery for historical data is it is it easier to do too is it is it an easier technology or do you have to be is it more technical than it used to be well the technology side has definitely went up but as far as the easiness of it that we don't have any um any boots on the ground or any 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 field hands out there on the field the danger of an individual um, a good example is we did a landfill and for an individual to walk that landfill we've got a bunch of trash we have 200 foot cliffs um, so we didn't have to have the physical person on the ground being in the environment we had a drone flying of 400 feet and never touch never be involved with the actual project right yeah, so you're actually doing it quicker, but it also helps safety metrics. Definitely, definitely. We did the refineries for Baker Hughes, and we had several people come in from Houston and talk to us about are they going to let us use the drones on the project or not. And it basically came down to the selling point of safety. Um, we would definitely have 
an individual on the ground would have to do through all the safety checks, through all the safety class, the certifications, we'd have to tag in and tag out. And when I was talked about the drone usage, we were able to fly above the, above the refinery, not be involved in any restricted or hazardous areas at 400 feet. Yeah, not worry about PPE and making sure the right boots on and all, and all that sort of stuff. Just definitely, get the job done. Definitely. In Can you go a little deeper in, uh, I guess, the safety of the drone is um, hot work permits. Are they worried about mechanical piece of equipment flying over the refinery or over people or anything like that? The biggest concern that they had was if the drone crashed. Where would it crash? And we're using a very large drone. I'm not sure if you guys seen yeah, it. Yeah, we saw it. I saw it. It's, it's very <laughs> impressive. I mean, it's, it's kind of intimidating if you don't know the drones. Um, I figured it pro- could probably lift me if I held on to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, we've, we designed that to, for LIDAR. LIDAR is definitely coming down the pike, and it'll carry 15 pounds for about 10 minutes. So that's um, that's pretty impressive. So that's actually really cool. So um, if our audience doesn't know, what is LIDAR? It's, uh, it's basically light detection. It'll shoot out lasers like the LIDAR pucks with 32 lasers. You're shooting about three to 400,000 points per second. Yeah, so LIDAR is actually, I, I'm very familiar with that. Long story, I won't get into it in this show, but LIDAR is one of those technologies where you can come into a situation like a refinery that really the as-builts don't accurately show where everything is, and it literally will measure everything within you know millimeters, millimeters. of precision. Correct. And you can then recreate it, and you can take that recreated model and send it halfway around the world and say, build me a pipe that fits right here, and it's it's perfect. Yeah, um, that's cool. Y'all to start doing lidar from drones. I mean, that's gonna open up all kinds of stuff. And the, and the work that we're doing now is in the lidar family. We're using digital photographs, and we're not getting the millimeter accuracies with the lidar, but we're getting centimeter accuracies for civil design or pipeline layout. But we're in the lidar family as far as the point cloud. We're producing point clouds, three D modeling, three D imaging. That is so cool. Um, and I want to go back to the drone a little bit. So, if people are listening and you have a kid that has a drone that has a camera in it, that's a toy. Yes. You're you're in a different universe. We're selling these for $25,000. Yeah, 25k a pop. Yes. And there's a whole bunch of rules and regulations that people don't understand here in the US specifically about how companies can use these drones to help their business. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure. Um, if you're doing any kind of commercial work, any turning any kind of profit, any kind of goods, you have to be a licensed 107 pilot. And they just changed that actually last fall. And the FAA just released a whole set of rules. Um, you've got to go down and take a, a, a 60 question test. I can't remember exactly. And if you pass that test then you, you actually get your license at that point. But even with the FAA 107 license, there's a lot of restrictions that you have to follow to be able to keep and maintain that license. So is that one license per operator, one license per company, one license per drone? How does that? It's one, basically you can do one license per, per company. Okay. And that guy is, they've made, they've actually loosened it up where that 107 pilot can be responsibly in charge. He can actually sit there and manage two or three, four people on a team. Do they, do they manage that? You, you can have one license for X number of employees or X number of drones within the company, or is it really just kind of open? They have the, the 107 pilot has to be on site per project. I okay. can't be sitting in Pennsylvania with one project flying at the same time here in Oklahoma flying. The, the 107 pilot has to be in presence per so He's in charge of that project on correct. site. Correct. Yeah, Anytime it, that drone's in the air, there has to be a 107 pilot yeah, in the vicinity. So for your business, you know, you may not have the guy walk in the field, but now you have to have the 107 pilot. So correct. It's it's different. Different. If you want to attract the bigger clientele, which we are looking for, you definitely want to be licensed, bonded. Now we have to be the 107 carrier. That's a, a great selling point for anybody that's 
it's looking to get in the commercial industry. Yeah, and y'all, and y'all have it. Yes, yeah. yes. We were the, one of the few very first that signed up to do it. Yeah. And how has that changed? I know the, the regulations were a little different back in November, December, and that recently changed without going into too much detail because it's, it's outdated. But how is that different from the old regulation? Before it was an exemption. You had a 333 exempt, which made you exempt from the traditional pilot rules and regulations. Now you have an actual license. I can actually say that I've, I'm a licensed UAV pilot. So it, it gives me a little more credential other than give me an exemption. So did that exclude a lot of other operators? Not that there's a, a ton of people doing this, but did that disqualify a few that, that can't qualify for this or didn't feel like they wanted to? Well, with the 330 exemptions, they let, they, they're allowing you to run with the 330 exemptions until they expire. But after the expi- expiration of the 330 exemption, you have to convert to the 107 license. Now, the 107 license is easier to obtain. We're going to see a lot of people get the 107 experience. Uh, the 333 exemption process was horrible. It was a lot of paperwork, a lot of uh, a lot of red tape. The bureaucracy had to go through. And with the 107 license, basically, if you study right and, and do your homework, you can pass the test in your 107. Do you, do you think it made things safer, or was it just, like you said, red tape? With the 107, I believe it kind of opened up a can of worms. I think everybody's out there getting their 107. Um, I think it was going to separate the smaller companies from the bigger companies. It's like ourselves. We have the credentials. We've been doing this for three years. We have a lot of recommendations. So for companies who are looking for a good drone operator, please do your homework and, yeah. and ask them for recommendations, if you will. Yeah, and so your strength, besides being licensed, the fact that you have experience doing this, and you cannot buy experience. Right? The more you've done it, the safer you get at it, the more accurate you get, the better you get at it. Um, so, you know, if you're an oil and gas company out there and, and you're looking to, to do some uh, drone survey work, I, you need to look at these guys because they've done it literally since it started. We've been so, done that. Yeah. So I want to back up just a little bit. So we talked about the drones. We talked about that these aren't children's toys. Um, but y'all actually, y'all have these made or y'all build these? Uh, we first started out buying turnkey drones. And there's a lot of new technology. There's a lot of empty promises. Um, but just at anything, not drones, computers, anything, you get the stuff and it just doesn't work. So we, we went through a lot of scars, bumps, and bruises, and we finally sat down, a, a friend of mine, with exact sense, if you will, um, sat down and we built this drone, designed this drone just for surveying engineering purposes. It had to be robust. It had to take the winds. Uh, we did several windmill farms down in Sweetwater, Texas, in 30, 35 mile an hour winds, and we were still able to go to work. That is cool. You could fly that thing in 35 mile an hour winds? It was, it was, it was nerve wracking. I wouldn't recommend it, but <laughs> we, we got the job done. Um, we... Being in Texas, the wind never stopped blowing, and if we didn't get out there and work, we never got the job done. Yeah, so this is the uh, Red Wing Oil and Gas HS&E show, and so we're totally focused on oil and gas, but you brought up something interesting. So you also do work for wind farms. I'm guessing that any place that you need a, a survey done that can be done early, y'all probably can help. We can do any kind of inspections, and that's kind of what I'm hoping to, to bring to the table with the oil and gas industry is you just really need to sit down and think about, I don't know your needs personally, but if you'll come – and start thinking drone related that this is just a vehicle to get a job just another tool in the box it, the doors are going to open tremendously yeah, so you talked a little about inspection that's uh, patrick we did a show a long time ago about uh, was it bp that was actually using drones to uh, i think the article we found was bp doing drones it was it was a terrible podcast it was, it was just <laughs> you and i talking and so it's um if i remember the article right it's actually bp was using drones to um inspect offshore rig and offshore platforms because it's the same thing it's less much more safer than having a guy yes. suspended in a yes. bozeman chair right and these uh and these 
drones were actually, it was amazing the amount of uh, things they were capturing that the, that the humans were missing because the drone could actually sit on site for longer and you had much higher resolution cameras that took the pictures, took the video, and people could go back later and do a deep dive into the pictures. Definitely, definitely. With the, uh, I bring up the windmills because we that's a great example. Traditionally, they would have a guy climb the tower and rappel down. They would do two windmills a day. We were doing five to eight, depending on the wind and the circumstances. Um, but the documentation and the history is just phenomenal. They, the, the guy on repelling down the blade would not have been able to go to the places and see right. the cracks or even the top of the tower. It's just, and then again, you know, the safety is a great issue. That's what helped us with the Baker Hughes and, and Ease and other companies is that it's a safety issue. Um, if, a, if a drone falls, it's a bad day. But if a gentleman or a human being falls, it's, it's, it's a bad Much deal. Much worse. Yes. Yeah. yes. Well, I safety. wanted to ask, I, well, I wanted to ask about, um, are these drones purpose built? Do you have one that's that's built for high wind? Others that have more carrying capacity, different maneuverability, longer battery life, different type of equipment, or definitely. you kind of have a, a standard that no, you? No, definitely, definitely. We being that there's so many options and, and, and uses for drones, it, it's really hard to build one drone to catch it all. So our, our obviously our larger drone is going to be built for endurance and, and uh, robust, like winds. Um, we're going to be able to carry a, a lot more weight. Uh, a lot heavier equipment. The smaller drones, we the cameras are going to be a little bit smaller, a little bit better as far as video work. So uh, the battery life is obviously smaller the drone, the better the battery life you're going to have. So it really kind of goes back to me saying that earlier where you got to really know your need of your situation, and then we can kind of customize what the drone to fit your need. So y'all, y'all would build a, a job-specific or site-specific drone for a specific need? Definitely. That or we would build a carrier to carry the equipment for, we'll use the same drone For an existing platform, platform right? Right, right. But we'll definitely change the gimbal or definitely change the way things are loaded on the drone. So, David, I have to ask you, if I would have asked you 10 years ago that you'd be doing this with remote-operated vehicles, you told me I was crazy? Oh, this, that would be that would be a, a drinking joke, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I would never even think about drones at that point. Because I think it's cool that you're talking about things like gimbals and batteries. So, what you're doing, the technology that you're not having to be comfortable with is radically different than what it was just not that many years ago. The lingo, ago. the vocabulary, it, it's all, it's a different game for sure. It's a game changer. Now, a lot of technology or actually really almost technology, it, there's always this uh, curve of uh, both adoption and price. So when it first comes out, it's expensive. Nobody knows how to use it. Then as people understand how to use it, they commercialize it. People get better at manufacturing. So the price starts going down. Are we there yet with commercial drones or No. No, I believe a commercial drones is still a new industry where the bigger companies are capitalizing on that. And that was one of the reasons we pushed to build our own. Um, being the cost of, a, of commercial drones are forty to $60,000, and, and my partner is selling them for about 25000 just because the overhead is, is just tremendous. But to, to kind of answer your question is that the smaller hobby drones, yes, it's getting way cheaper. The racing drones, the little play toys, it, it's definitely – you know, two twenty five hundred dollars would have bought you a decent drone a couple of years ago, and now they're selling them all day for six hundred dollars. Right? So, but, can you can you define where the cutoff is? These these hobby drones versus where you come in, and then what's the upper limit? Is there a, a maximum size speed that nobody goes above, or legally you can't? The FAA's got us at fifty five pounds or less, okay. so we we have to stay below that. Now you can build bigger drones, but you have to file for an exemption, and they, it has to be approved and more of that bureaucracy tape. How much do yours weigh? 
Uh, our drone without the battery weighs about 12 pounds. Now the batteries is the Keeley's tendon in all this industry. If somebody was to produce a better battery, they would be a billionaire at this point. Um, our batteries actually weigh more than the drone itself. Yeah, so all together, you're, what, 20 pounds, 25? About 20, 20, 25 pounds. So, wow. So, you're halfway to that 55-pound mark. Definitely. And I think as technology, even though technology maybe gets smaller, I think the drones are going to be heavier just because of the amount of equipment or sensors that we're going to mount to these things in the future. Now, is that just the platform weight, the platform plus the battery, or is that entire payload? Entire payload, we're looking about 25 pounds. Okay. All right. The batteries are probably about 15, and the actual drones around 10, 12. It's pretty impressive. I mean, really, when you, like I said, we've, we built these things to do ultimately carry 12 to 15 pound LIDARs, which is, which some, some companies claim that's on the market, but I really don't foresee proficiency for another year on the LIDAR side of it. So the one you have at this conference, it's 25 pounds, three foot wingspan about? Probably so. Rotor to rotor. Three, so. three and a half. We're running right. 18 inch props. Um, we're using the forearm configuration with double, dual rotating props. So one prop on top, one prop on bottom. You know, 18 inches flying around, it's uh, it, it, it's definitely staying back when you start to think of So when you get up to the 55-pound range, are we talking double the size of it, or is it just you, you want to add more equipment? I think when you when people start looking at bigger, longer drones, you're going to look at longer flight times. Um, they're going to be able to hire, uh, haul bigger payloads. Uh, I've seen some drones on the Internet where people are actually doing crop spraying. Wow. Obviously, if you're carrying, you know, it's about 8 to 10 pounds per gallon of water, that adds up pretty quick, and you're trying to spray a large area. You're going to need a, a huge drone to carry something like that. So something out from left field, because um, you're in this world. You know, I've heard a lot of talk about drone delivery. Amazon supposedly looking at whatever. You think we could get there? You think we get to the point where you could order something from Amazon and a drone's could drop it off at your house? It's kind of the joke. Um, when you get divorced, you ask for everything and you get what you want. I think Amazon's kind of on that same playing field with the government at this point. Uh, to actually see individual deliveries, I believe we're still five to seven, maybe even 10 years out. I think what Amazon scheme, and this is my own personal opinion, is that it's going to be hub-to-hub delivery. It's going to be internally delivery. Um, I believe if you're in Dallas right now and you order something early enough, they guarantee it will be delivered that day. Right. And to, to handle that kind of volume of, of, of product, you're going to have to have some kind of rush delivery system and keep that stuff in the warehouse. Yeah, and I, I believe that's where the drones and Amazon's trying to keep their own internal stock. It's but it's really cool to think about that that, that as we move forward in time, there'll, there'll be less people involved. And you know, every time I talk with this, people always go, "Yeah, but you could lose jobs." Yeah, but you could create other ones. You know, exactly. You didn't need drone pilots ten years ago. No, no. no. It, it's just like Uber and taxis at this point. I mean, and the taxi cabs were almost out of business, and Uber's coming in. So you need to change with the times, and that's where we're headed with. With everything from engineering to package delivering to Amazon, you've, you're not only losing the delivery, but you're creating. You're going to have somebody to maintain these. You got to have some kind of mechanic. You're going to have some kind of programmer, um, map, map, map manipulation. It's just, it's, it's you're going to have to get your education and just kind of adapt. Yeah, look times. at what you're doing. Y'all are building these drones, which means that you need parts source from other people. That's creating jobs. You know, there was nobody building drone props 15 years ago. No, There's nobody no. building small electric DC motors or controllers or j- internal gyroscopes or accelerometers. You know, so all that stuff is a need for it's, it. It's a huge market, huge market. Uh, I believe I read the numbers. It's going to be $84 billion market wow. in the first you know, couple of years. Now that the 107 is 
been approved and people are more uh, available to fly, I, I think we're going to hit that $84 billion. And that's from not only the service industry, but for parts, labor, I mean, just the whole industry itself. But if you think about $84 billion, that's that's pretty impressive. For, how, how robust are these parts when your, your drone takes a takes uh, a spill? I mean, is it... The, the smaller drones, they, they can take a roll. The bigger ones, it's, it's a bad day when they come yeah. down. It's, that's just what I was thinking. Like, a drone that heavy, if it hits something, it can't be it's pretty. It's just being obliterated. Like I said, we've... When we first bought these drone turnkey, we had a couple of them crash, and we went over there. There was nothing left. It just it looked like it just blew up on its own. So um, do you go out to a site with multiple drones that, that cost tens of thousands of dollars? You come out with a bag full of parts being able to get out there and repair? Bag full of parts and yeah. attorneys. That's <laughs> <laughs> we, we eventually got our money back, and that's how we ended up designing our own, our own drone. And so um, we talked a bit about the pilot, the requirements, um, the robustness, the, how it uh, helps safety. I'm going to go back to safety in a second. But the one thing that you brought up and I didn't think of, um, how much of the drone's flight when you're actually working with it is being controlled by a human at this point? Is it 100%? It depends on what we're doing. If we're doing inspection and work, yes, we want 100% drone-operated manipulation um, just because we're doing very – unique maneuvers trying to get in closer to objects um, when we're doing mapping it's very autonomous we'll uh, we'll pre-program it will with a laptop the flight station uh, we'll send that program or that flight state that flight to the drone and we'll uh, we can actually hit a button and that thing will take off go do its job run that grid and actually land man that's pretty cool so I'm just thinking this through. If, if I was an operator of a pipeline company and I want to do regular inspections somewhere down the road, this may be a way for me to regularly inspect my own pipeline. Definitely. You could pre-program your flight lines, yeah. pre-program your inspection routes, and actually have somebody go out there, set the drone up, make sure the vitals are ready to take off, and let it do its thing. Yeah, it, and the drone doesn't get tired, doesn't get mad at its wife, doesn't want to take holidays, doesn't, doesn't get, get sick. sick. Yeah. Yes, yes. All right, so let's go back to the safety thing because this is the HSE uh, uh, podcast. So we understand that it reduces men in the field, um, but as we're talking about this, the the other thing that occurred to me is your ability to go out and inspect with very high degree of precision almost all of anything that's out there because you're not limited by ladders or ropes or anything else. That means that you actually catch potential failures probably quicker than a human would. Oh, definitely, definitely. I think the drone would be. Like you said, it's going to be able to reach spots that humans won't. And that, and you kind of brought up an issue of the human gets tired, they get a little sloppy. Right. Um, the drone's not going to get sloppy. Um, the, the operators hopefully won't get tired just sitting there doing the control work. Um, it is nerve-wracking and kind of intense when you're up against, you know, multi-million dollar equipment. Um, but with the right operator and the right piece of equipment, that, like I said, the safety issue's taken out. Then, then again, if a drone crashes or... It's a bad day for the drone, but obviously if a human slips or falls or gases or anything hazardous, um, you're looking at a human loss. You know, that's I didn't even think about it. That's a good point. So what if you're in a, an area where they say there's not enough oxygen or there's some dangerous gas? The drone doesn't care as long as it's not combustible atmosphere, right? Correct. You can fly right through all of that. Correct. As long as it's not flammable. Um, that was an issue with the, the Baker Hughes is the, you know, what about flammability? But with us mapping, we're at 400 feet. And we're way above any any kind of fumes that would travel that high at that point would not affect the. It drone. would be dispersed. It wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. So, so we've we've kind of t- uh, touched on something wrecking on a site that you're already inspecting. Correct. So the company you're working for, say Baker Hughes, they they understand the risk of you coming flying your drone. What about neighboring structures, other businesses, uh, highways? Is there any safety concern, legal concern with operating one of your drones? 
near something like that you can harm that you're actually not working with. Definitely, definitely. Because we've done some highway work where we've had to fly the drone over the highway, very dense populated, a lot of traffic. And, you know, you always have that concern in the back of your mind where the drone flies and hits a bus and kills every kid. Right. um, But the way we're doing our drones and the way we have our setup, we have multiple safety precautions. We have, we're able to recall that drone at any time. We have... Self-destruct, and you just (laughs) blow it up. And and powder would fall from the sky. (laughs) That would be great, but... uh, um, there, we have options where if it, if it doesn't, if it goes off course and starts going on its own, it'll, it'll hit a geofence, if you will. It'll hit a, hit a limit, hit that fence, and come home. Uh, as an operator, I've always got one guy on a controller and one guy watching the vitals on the laptop. If anything goes wrong, our number one thing is safety. If we even have a gut feeling something doesn't feel right, we'll bring it back. Start over, check it out, and send it back up. Yeah. This is a very good place for us to pause, Patrick, uh, to do our uh, Red Wing safety tip of the week. Guess what? I have oh, one. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Um, so when you're wearing your boots, lace darn things up, right? It's the number one way to keep having ankle injuries. I actually got this from Red Wings crew. It's um, less chance of slipping. It extends the life of the boots and it, it prevents those ankle roll-ups. You know, I know you're in a hurry. I know you don't want to lace those things up. Take the extra 30 second, lace your boots up. Trust me. If you take a bad step, you'll be glad you did. It's comfort. It's not speed. I, I, everybody wants their, their boots laced up in life. And, and Red Wings boa, that, that ratchet strap they have, you, you crank it down because... I've dealt with, I've worked with some guys that have those, those bow straps and they'll put one or two cranks on it just enough to keep it from falling off and you completely get rid of the ankle protection but absolutely right Mark yeah and audience don't get used to me doing the safety tips it's probably my one time this year <laughs> and this is a, a good time uh, we're going to move to the bad bag winner so if you'd like to win one of these awesome Red Wing offshore bags it's very very easy um, you go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast enter your information no purchase necessary see official site for rules and regulations David see over there yes you could win one of those nice all you gotta do is go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast and this week's winner is Luis Moreno with Honeywell. Congratulations, Luis. You are the winner of this week's Red Wing Offshore Bag. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so um, we're starting to wind things down. David, man, dude, thank you so much for your well, time. Yeah, I, I want to awesome. stop. We've been using the word drone, and after our last podcast, we, we just kept calling it drone, drone, drone. And one of the guys uh, that I'm, I'm friends with listened to the podcast and he said we were not using the correct uh, terminology, oh, UAV versus drone. So what's the difference between oh, UAV man, this is, this and This has been drone. a constant battle for years. Um, <laughs> when I first started out in this, ever, the drone was a four-letter word. It was dirty. It was really? dangerous. It was, everybody hated the drones. It was, uh, yeah, he know, hit me pretty hard for calling it drone. We, did, we didn't use UAV once in our podcast last time, and he just slammed. He said I was completely I eventually just gave up. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's a drone. But, um, you know, at the beginning of this, everybody's like, man, they're peeking through my windows. It's a privacy issue. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, like, well, if it's on my property, I'm going to shoot it, in which I joke around. I was like, please shoot the drone. It's the most publicity you're going to give me. It, kinda, it stops the whole conversation catches them off guard. But the whole drone, UAV, UAS. It's Wait, all is it a PR thing. thing then? People are just afraid of the word drone? I think it's a media scare. I mean, okay. you, I think you see a lot of a lot of the media. You don't see a lot of encouraging media over drones. It's always, hey, this this drone hit this helicopter, this plane, um, you know, peaked in the White House. I mean, that was what two years ago. We yeah. found one on the the White House grounds, which which is very peculiar. Uh, we'll be straight with you about that. But it's a uh, 
I don't see anything positive being said with the drones at this point. I mean, the industry, the commercial side of it, you see a lot of photographers, a lot of people taking pictures, but you very, very rarely see people talking about inspections or surveying or, you know, how it really can help out the industry or public safety as a whole. The funny thing is bringing up the press kind of bashing drones. A lot of them, especially their portable camera crews, use drones to get those wide panorama shots because they don't have to get anybody up high. They don't have to have a helicopter. Oh, definitely. Here in Tulsa, we got one news company that just hammers, you know, the first drone, you know, first news drone company and you know in the area and it's just it's okay for them to use it but you know we, we need to make the story we gotta have we gotta fill that hour of dead air some way so that any any drone related craziness is, is gonna hit the hit the media <laughs> yeah sure. so um this um this podcast is part of the oil and gas global network yes um we, I am desperately trying to find an excuse for me to buy one of the high end drones. <laughs> I just, I want one, but I don't have an excuse yet. But we may have one to sell. Uh, get yeah. tax write off. I mean, yeah. get an extra twenty five laying around. We'll, we'll sell you one. So, ready to start winding things down? Yeah, I think so. All right. So, David, thank you for being on the show. This was awesome. A kind of behind the scenes glimpse of what's going on. You're doing great work out there. If anybody wanted to find out more about you and your company, where should they go? Oh, check out our first book page, Air Topo. Um, you can go to our webpage, airtopo.com. Uh, it's great. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're here. I'm a pleasure to bring us in. Yeah. So, uh, folks, uh, Patrick will put links in the show notes. And what uh, about you personally? Uh, LinkedIn, anything like that? Email address? Uh, email address PLS for Air Professional Land Surveyor for number four the Air Gmail dot com. Yeah, we'll stick that link up there as well. Yes. Yep. Uh, David, man, this is awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Appreciate yeah. It. All right, folks, uh, I guess it's time to wind things. Oh, no, we have to talk about LinkedIn group, Patrick. Oh, yeah. LinkedIn group, the Oil and Gas Global Network, OGGN. It is the place to go. It's a companion to this podcast. It's got everything. When we when we post an episode, you'll see it there first. We've got a live event coming up in March, so first March. quarter of 2017. Uh, you're going to hear about it at, well, first our website, the theoilinghse.com. Yep. And then you'll hear about it on the LinkedIn group. Within seconds of each other. <laughs> uh, and it's um, if when you go to the oilandgashsnewwebsite.com, uh, go sign up for an email uh, list. We won't spam you. We're going to have special event, special content only for our email subscribers. So go sign up. Uh, anything that we do, you'll be automatically pushed to your inbox. And then I'm probably this is the last time I'm going to say this. We broke our iTunes feed. So Mark, if you, Mark broke our iTunes I broke our feeds. iTunes feed. <laughs> so if you were subscribed via iTunes, you have to go back, search for the show again, resubscribe. But it also means we lost all of our reviews. So do Patrick and I a favor. If you left us a review, a review can you please leave us another one? And if you haven't left us a review, please leave us one. Uh, it's a big help. Um, go, go to the show notes. There's a link in there. There's a couple instructions. iTunes is a little hard to, to navigate, but it's all there. You can follow the link. We also changed the sign-up page for the, the offshore back. Uh, it, so it's still the same it's URL. the same for us but when you get there now you'll see both shows yeah you can pick which show you listen to um, and then Patrick and I are on the road we'll be at the Nate Summit in February Process Safety and Oil and Gas in March SPEHSE in New Orleans uh, in April OTC with National Oil Well in May IEDC HSE and Training Conference in February yeah, yeah. so uh, we're on the road if you'd like Patrick and I to come to your event your trade organization your company talk to you maybe do a podcast in there let us know we'll share the details with you and if you're going to be at any one of these events reach out to us we'll be walking around the floor we'll do a podcast so just reach out to us yeah it's um. and if you would like to get your company on here and you have an HSE story, once again, reach out to Patrick and I. Uh, we'd love to be able to tell your story to our rather large, growing, growing, growing and big audience. All right, so let's get out of here, Patrick. Yeah. Folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Y'all be safe out there. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. 
Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. Now, when we first bought the the turnkey drone, um, we were out testing it around 61st and Yale area. It's very uh, medical area, very a lot of a lot of money. So we're in this big field testing it. It took off, doing its thing, and it just just wigged out. It did. We eventually sent it back, but there was as it was banking to the right, hard off the off the hill, there was a Lexus just making that corner. <laughs> I told my guys, I was like, man, if it hits that Lexus, we're just packing up and leaving. I don't, I don't know where it's going. I have no clue. Um, another good drone story is we did the PSO power plant here in Tulsa on the river, and I, t- I kept joking around. I was like, man, this thing crashes in the substation. We're just heading straight to Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> it's not how we want to make the papers. You know? That's before all the 333 and the 107. We were just out there kind of just wild, wild west at that point. But it's, it's, it was nerve-wracking. But, yeah, I, I was not going to stick around for the press on that one at all. <laughs>